Will you turn with me in the Word of God to Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12. Our text this morning is going to be verse 13 to 21. I'm going to ask you here and wherever you may be, if you're tuning in on Facebook Live, go ahead and stand up. Let's stand up for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of our living God. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possession. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up for himself. He's not rich toward God. You may be seated. Something caught my attention the other day, which I have to confess and admit got under my skin. And that thing was an article written about billionaire pandemic profiteers. Billionaire pandemic profiteers. Think about this. From the time that you and I all got locked down and many of us lost our jobs until just a week ago, the richest people in America increased their collective wealth by over $300 billion. While 26 million Americans or more lost their jobs. The top eight of those, just eight, increased their collective wealth by billions of dollars. Now, the framing of that is something that really grasps you, doesn't it? Billionaire, pandemic, profiteers. Thought about that, I said, I think that captures something about our culture, doesn't it? I think that captures something about the zeitgeist and the spirit of our age and the messaging which comes through every loudspeaker we encounter in our materialistic world, which is that the pursuit of riches makes us happy. There's something in that that's a warning signal. And it should be fairly obvious without having to say it when you think of billionaire pandemic profiteers. It's a fairly obvious truth that the pursuit of riches has this great problem to it. 
It squeezes God right out of your mind. Jesus warns about this in all kinds of different ways, from different angles and different perspectives. He warns again and again about the power of the concern for riches and material things and greed, how it chokes the life of the word out of the soul. But he says something here which is extremely relevant to us as we turn to Luke chapter 12 this morning, which is this, which is that a love of money, a love of riches, a love of the things of this age, it is a sort of treasuring up and the kind of storing up for ourselves in an act of self-worship, but it doesn't accomplish God's priority. God's priority for us, Jesus makes very plain this morning, the Word of God is being rich in God. I didn't choose this text this morning because it was my fear that any among us were struggling with greed? The reason why I picked this text is because I wanted to pluck the chord, which I think is most dominant here, which speaks to the great priority of life. And I hope that this has been a season for us to think about priorities. Whether you've lost your job or not, whether you've been sitting around your house most of the time or not, I hope that as all of us are in the same suit together, which is something that feels very awkward and different and strange, there's been a time for us to think collectively as the people of God about priorities so that as we move away from this season, whenever we do, by the hand and the grace and the providence of God, that we have learned something about priorities, that we have been reinforced in priorities. And Jesus says, right at the top of the list of priorities is this. We are to seek to be rich in God. I'll say it again. At the top of the list of priorities which we have is that we are to seek to be rich in God. But that's where this whole matter of material possessions and riches and greed comes in. And as I said, I'm not concerned here this morning that any of us are in the circle of billionaire pandemic profiteers. But Jesus spends the bulk of his time before he introduces this grand dominant no of being rich in God. He spends the bulk of his time talking to what must have been a very ordinary man about the problem of concern over riches and material things. And by doing that, he signals to us this morning that that particular problem of being distracted from pursuing and seeking riches in God is a perennial problem for all believers and in every age, and particularly ours. You see, because this heart of ours is sinful and Desperately wicked, as the prophet says, who can know it? We're always going to be struggling with that impulse to manufacture replacements. And Jesus addresses that here. Predominantly, he addresses that problem as he drives us towards this great end of our life, seeking to be rich in God. So this morning, what I want to do is think about this grand idea of being rich in God See here that Jesus teaches us that it comes through rejecting the pursuit of earthly and material things 
And instead, it's about embracing God in Jesus Christ. Now, the book of our time is going to be spent on this first thing, rejecting earthly substitutes. But I trust as we work our way through this story, we'll see its relevance, right? So let's think, first of all, this morning about uh, this idea of rejecting earthly substitutes. And it emerges in verse 13 with a question from the nameless, faceless man in the crowd saying, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Who is this man? We have no idea. But whatever his condition, he feels jilted. You see, he's come to Jesus, and it would have been common in his day for rabbis to serve as mediators and judges and arbitrators in property disputes over inheritance. And uh, the broader context here tells us that Jesus has um, been teaching to a crowd of many thousands of people, so he has every appearance of being a rabbi to this man's way of thinking and looking at things. And He's been in this crowd, and he's been listening to the instruction. But the problem with this man is he's got a burning question, which to him is more important than Christ's teaching. And his concern is simple and straightforward. Jesus, divide my inheritance. We're not exactly sure what the problem was. It could be a perceived sense of injustice, that he didn't get enough. It's possible that his brother might have been what the Jews of that day called a son or a brother of violence, who seized way more than was his, or perhaps all of the inheritance, and took it for himself and left this man penniless. It's possible. It's possible also that um, the particular problem here is, as this man has heard Christ and listened to his teachings, he may have thought that Jesus was something of a revolutionary. He might be willing to consider a change in the law. You remember that um, under the Old Testament law, according to Deuteronomy 21, that um, the oldest brother was to receive a double portion of the inheritance. Maybe this guy here is the younger brother and he would like more. And so maybe he's seeking from Jesus a kind of um, leveling out and, and equitable in his mind distribution of the inheritance. The fact is we simply don't know, but there's one thing that we do know from this text is this man is not motivated by spiritual concerns. That's the entry point in the story for us. This man, which is evidence in the appeal, is not motivated by spiritual concerns. And we can say that because he's interrupting Christ as he's teaching. We've already said, if you look back to verse 1, you could see that thousands have assembled themselves around Jesus to hear his instruction. And Jesus has been expounding doctrine on a number of spiritual themes. But just imagine, if you had the chance to, to sit under the ministry and the teaching of Jesus Christ, how would you be? The very evidence from the whole range of testimony that we're receiving the, the Gospels about uh, Jesus' teaching is that he was captivating, he was charismatic. He had penetrating and powerful illustrations. He could hold a crowd, that there was great substance to his teaching. In fact, one of the first times he preached in his, home crowd, in his hometown, we're told that the people said, can it be that this is the son of the carpenter? He speaks as one who has authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. So from on every metric and measure uh, and assessment, 
from what we hear from others, other witnesses to his preaching, is that it was captivating and spellbinding. But this man has no concern for those things. He is not concerned about matters pertaining to the kingdom of God. He could care less about issues relating to discipleship. He has one concern. You see, he's like the profiteer. He has managed in his pursuit over concern for material things to do what? To squeeze God from his thoughts. I don't assess this man as being wealthy and by, by any means. I do see, however, from the whole way that he's presented here is that Jesus is saying, this can happen to anyone. A misplacing of priorities. A getting caught up in creaturely concerns to the point that we're so consumed by issues of daily bread that God squeezed straight out of our minds. That is exactly how Jesus diagnoses the problem because he refuses immediately to be the arbitrator and he immediately moves to speak to this man about spiritual issues. You see, he refuses to take up the matter of inheritance and instead spins away from that to start to speak about matters of the soul. Look for yourself now at verse 15, where we have a warning about greed. Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possession? Two very powerful verbs. Beware. Stronger is be on your guard. It's a military term. Guard as a soldier. The doubling of imperatives here speaks of extreme caution and vigorous engagement. Something that he's calling all of us to. All of us should be very careful. That's what he's saying here. Be on your guard against greed. And notice just how comprehensive this is. He, he uses a particular term here for greed, which means insatiable desire for things. And as you look at the rest of this text, particularly relating to the parable of the, of the rich man, this guy's pretty much consumed with everything. He, he's like a distracted, somebody distracted who's looking out the window of life. And every time he sees something, a, a trinket uh, that glistens in the sunlight, he's fixated on it. Eating and drinking and merriment and ease. You know the list. So we hear this idea of greed. Just be, be aware here this morning. We can't just uh, reduce it to, to the pursuit of billions. It's It's... It's much more expensive. And then he doubles down on the expansiveness of it all as he says, every form, every form of it. So, so here we have a, a widening of the scope of what Jesus is concerned about. He's saying anything that a person might be led to be captivated by among the creatures in creation, he says, watch out. Why? 
Now, what he does here is, is quite interesting because he gives the warning and then he says, for. I always like to stop and see those because they are the fabric of the text which helps connect ideas together. It had the admonition. Now we have the reason for. And he says here in a very effective way, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consistent. I wonder if you seized on those words. Even, yeah. You see, Jesus says, I, I want you to imagine a situation. And the situation is this, that, that a guy has, or, or a woman ha has pursued exactly what their heart desired. They work the extra hours. They saved their money. They climbed up the ladder. They obtained their success. And as they sit there, uh, after years of striving and laboring, they have absolutely everything they set their hearts on. See, Jesus takes the scenario and he brings it down to earth for us to, to lay hold of it. What if you had everything you could ever wish for in life? He said, even if you had all that, your life doesn't consist of it. In other words, he's saying already, the reason why you have to beware of greed is because of its gnawing hollowness. It's empty. Think of that. Our age knows nothing of the reality of preaching that truth. Our age would have us fixed all the time on the pursuit of that prize. Because it tells you constantly, if you have that, life will be meaningful. You will be important. You'll be satisfied. Human heart doesn't change. 2,000 years ago... Jesus speaks of the emptiness of all of this, and we're still struggling with that. It's perennial. And he says, the reason why you have to be on guard is because of the emptiness of it all. The more you seek after these things and seek to find fulfillment and satisfaction, and the more you replace God, the more you replace God, the more you're empty. So Jesus diagnoses this man's spiritual problem. He thought, it was about some sort of injustice. He didn't get enough. Christ said, you have a problem. You prize creatures in creation and you squeezed God out of your heart. And so he tells a parable here. And the, the parable is, is full of vividness, isn't it? It's a, it's a parable you probably learned on your mama's knee, right? About the rich fool. And, and every part of the story is gripping and interesting, isn't it? The parable begins with the story of a man, not his dog, but his field. Look at it. Uh, verse 16. The land of a rich man was very productive. And I think that's very interesting right there because the way that Jesus sweeps this out, he removes the man and his agency from his wealth. Jesus makes it very clear that the reason why this guy is rich is because of dirt. Pretty humbling, isn't it? The reason this man is rich is because of dirt. 
the dirt, the ground, the earth was productive. Not the man. He doesn't have anything because of his labors or his elbow grease. He has what he has because of dirt. Instead of giving thanks to the Lord, he worships himself. But the effectiveness of his dirt leads to a problem. You can see that in verse 17 in the searching question. What shall I do? Since I have no place to store up my crops. You see, the image here is that he has so much abundance from the dirt and from the field. His barns are literally overflowing. And the grain is spilling out on the ground. And it's not making anything for him. It's no longer productive for him. It's just waste. You know what he does? He turns to himself. Look at the word here. He began reasoning to himself. This is one of those very strong verbs which speaks of intellectual activity and debate. Internal argument. But you see here, the conversation is with me, myself, and I. An image of this man's self-reliance. It gives us some snapshot and sense of, of how he thought of himself. He was an army of one. He was self-reliant. One particular commentator sweeps out the sense here. As he said, this is a picture of a man intoxicated with foolish self-confidence. Intoxicated with foolish self-confidence. Well, the result of the conference that he had with himself, he develops a strategic plan. You can see it in verse 18. He said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. So what did he do? He developed a business plan to do what? To enlarge his capacity. Because if he enlarges his capacity, he can have more inventory. More inventory leads to more sales. And more sales leads to what? More money. And more money leads to, you got it. Anything you want. So he has a business plan. And so he swaps out a smaller barn and smaller piles of cash for big barns and a mountain of money. And then, verse 19, the plan terminates in what? I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This man's a logical thinker, isn't he? The problem with this man is not his reasoning. This is logical, isn't it? There's progress. First, a plan. Then the execution. Finally, the enjoyment. But the thing here that really captures you when you read this is this accent on soul. It's not by accident that Jesus uses that. Jesus uses this term to describe this rich man to dig down into his heart and, and to brush away everything on top of the surface that, that cloaks and conceals the spiritual issues at stake in the kind of person who devotes himself to creatures and creation rather than to God. And it's this. It's the idea 
that I can feed and nourish my soul by filling my physical appetite. Soul, he says, eat and drink. But the last time I checked, my soul doesn't have a mouth or sensation. And Jesus is overstating it for the reason of showing us here that this stuff is useless. It may, for a moment, satisfy and gratify a physical appetite, but you can't bless your soul with creatures and creation. By doing that, he sweeps out the vanity of greed. It believes that soul satisfaction comes from physical gratification. This is the emptiness of materialism. And this is the essence of idolatry. Paul speaks of people who called their God their stomach appetite. This is exactly what Jesus speaks of. And you can see folly. The thumbprints of this kind of folly are everywhere. The thumbprints of this kind of folly are everywhere. Stamped upon the things that people pursue. We can see when folly is lurking. And the pursuit of vanity is dominant. When we look at the things that people want. And they spend everything to get. This man said, I got a great plan. I have superior execution. I'll achieve the result. I'll eat. I'll drink. I'll take my ease. I'll have my merriment. Jesus turns now from the parable to the warning about vanity in verse 20. You fool. God said to him, this very night your soul will be required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? This is a fascinating point now, isn't it? Because here Jesus introduces God into the picture, speaking directly to this man who's been speaking to his soul. God speaks directly to his heart. And he says, you fool. The first thing here is a moral assessment. A moral assessment. And the moral assessment is this. A fool is a person who wastes their life on vanity. A fool is a person who believes they can subvert their spiritual appetite for God by filling it full of creature comforts. A fool is a person who doesn't make any provision for eternity and spends all of their time planning for today and maybe tomorrow and physical and creaturely and material blessings. A fool is a person who pushes God out of their thoughts by pursuing creature comfort and money and earthly resources. God judges him, you fool. And notice the statement of judgment. This very night your soul will be required of you. You see, God brings down the hammer of judgment on him. This night your soul will be required. And this word required is the same word you would use in ancient times to refer to paying back a loan in full. A loan has been taken out and the balance and the principle is required. It's an image of judgment. The requirement is that this man's life is owed 
in judgment for his sin. He's made no provision for eternal life. He's made no provision for spiritual things. He's made no provision for his soul and the forgiveness of his sin. And God says to him, that's the operation of a fool. And that person, their soul will be required. And here's the thing. Before he snuffs his life and whisks his soul away in judgment, he asks a penetrating question. He says to this man, now who will own what you have prepared? God doesn't need the answer to that question. He already knows. It's a way of making the person conscious of the uh, vanity of what he's done. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, you'll take none of your money with you. None of your gold, houses, cars, watches, clothes, anything. And if you did, it wouldn't be worth anything. This is what God is saying to him. What is it that you will take with you when you stand before the throne of God? All this man will be cloaked in is his vanity. And then the question is designed to say, and oh, how the scriptures were right. The witches, that riches fly, uh, grow wings and they fly away. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? You see, in pursuit of creature comforts and self-gratification, God is squeezed out of the soul. Instead, the life of the soul is choked out and left with nothing but the fearful prospect of judgment. And so the conclusion of verse 21, Jesus says, So is the man who stores treasure for himself. He's not rich toward God. It's a pivot away from parable to a universally binding conclusion and principle. You see, the parable is really designed here to be illustrative of a universal principle. And it's this. That every person who makes provision for this life and not his soul and eternal life is the rich fool. Every person, in every age, in every place, in every condition, Jesus is saying, that person is like this rich fool. And what his life is about is storing up for himself rather than unto the Lord. This is a, a fairly strong Response, isn't it, to a very simple question. Jesus, would you divide my retirement savings for me? Jesus brings the hammer. Because he perceives in it misplaced priorities which are so dangerous and so soul-killing that without the sternest and sharpest kind of rebuke and warning, that kind of a person won't miss it. You see, Jesus perceived in it that if this man is, is willing to interrupt him as he's teaching about the kingdom of God, to concern himself with banal trivialities, that this man is in such a desperate condition, nothing less than something very sharp. Something like a, a scalpel is required to slice through the delusion in order that they may be led to think as God Let's have a point of application before we move on to pluck this dominant thread of our text. 
which is riches in God. But it seems to me as you think through this text, there are a series of three delusions that Jesus seeks to penetrate and to pierce. And the first one is, I am the source and cause of my riches and success. I am the source and cause of my riches and my success. I, I, I wonder if you saw it yourself here. He's taking counsel with himself in verse 17. He's devising his own plan in verse 18 about the, the bigger barns and the greater storage capacity and the, and the, the greater volume and inventory. This man makes every single decision here out of his own sense of self. And he believes that he is the cause. He is the one responsible. And yet, the way Jesus framed this beginning in verse 16 shows the delusion of it. He said, this man was rich not because of himself, but because of dirt. I wonder... It's easy for us to look at the billionaire profiteers and see in the grotesque image of people who would seek profit off of people who are suffering. We all look at that and rightly are disgusted by it. But do we see the problem here with the principle? Which isn't just that, it's, it permeates everyone who has the attitude of seeking after a pleasant a present pleasures and success, and making no provision for a right relationship with God. It's this. I'm the cause of my success. I am the cause of my happiness. We're reminded this morning, people of God, that the scriptures teach us it's the Lord. It's the Lord who causes us to get wealth. It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. Proverbs 10, 22. The delusion that Jesus pierces here, which is a necessary message for us to hear today, is the delusion that I am the cause. The second delusion here in our text is that riches will be soul satisfying. I can't help but, again, look at verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink. And be merry. You see, he's reduced the life of the soul to appetites. The problem with appetites, though, as near as I experienced them in my life, is they keep coming back. They're never satisfied. You can't feed the soul with physical appetites. See, but this tells us about the perspective that is being warned against here, which is that uh, the more we pursue things without the Lord in them, the more we'll squeeze God out of the picture and the more we end up worshiping ourselves and our appetites and desires. And Jesus warns that that's not the pathway to being rich in God. The third delusion here, I control tomorrow. This is a lesson all of us are learning in our culture. We don't do that. I control tomorrow. I think it's uh, highly critical that Jesus, in the midst of this story, says that God penetrates the thought world of this man in the middle of the night as he was making his plans for the morrow to enjoy what his riches had secured. And you see, uh, it's full of the agency of self. There's numerous references to I and my throughout here. My crops, my barns, my grain, 
my goods, myself, I will. And God says, tonight, I require it. The delusion that I control tomorrow is pierced and penetrated and crushed here by the thought that God controls tonight. If God controls tonight, I don't control tomorrow. We don't say that to scare ourselves. We say that to affirm what we already know and believe. That we're to live for the Lord every moment that he gives. We're to live for the glory of God. Knowing that tomorrow will take care of itself according to the good and perfect will of God. But this man's full of a delusion. And Jesus pierces through that and seeks to crush it to show its emptiness and vanity. But what about the what I've said already is what I regard as the, the dominant thread and note of our text. And I said Jesus is going to spend a lot of time to get there primarily because there's this massive spiritual obstacle to it. But it seems to me the, the high note, the soaring note of our text is not all the delusions we just spoke of. And it's the being rich in God part. And I find it so interesting that Jesus sort of drops it there. And so I started thinking about how do we talk about being rich in God in a way that brings home the force of this text. Because to me, this is what I, I all would like us to really think about as we, as we go home. As we think about our priorities. As we ask ourselves, what is it we're seeking to do with our life? I think it's right here. Jesus is saying it's being rich in God. But how do we get there? The answer is Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5. You see here, the preacher says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. We have parallel commands here. So what we have in these commands in verse 5, to make sure our character is free from the love of money and being content with what you have, these parallel the moral commands and principles of Luke 12, 15, where Jesus says, beware and watch out or be on guard for every form of greed. So we have the same theme and topic here. So the preacher here, as he's addressing the church at the end of this magnificent book of Hebrews, is driving home a moral principle to the people of God. It's the same moral principle that Jesus drove home. But I want you to notice the way there. And it's in the promissory note in the second part of verse 5. He himself has said, I will... Never desert you or forsake you. You know, those words are the words that God spoke to Joshua. And it's interesting that before God spoke those words to Joshua, he spoke them to Moses. So what you have is sort of a combining of some text from, uh, from the law, and then they're applied to Joshua. And the context in which they're applied to Joshua and Joshua 1 is interesting because God is giving Joshua the marching orders to lead the people of God in conquest of the land of Canaan. A massive and monumental calling. And so uh, this particular thread of promise um, brackets 
the moral imperatives that God gives to Joshua. They're like a sandwich structure around the imperatives, which tells us that the way Joshua will fulfill his office and calling under Christ is by what? Accessing God in the promises that will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. You see, the way that Joshua was to fulfill his calling is the same way the preacher says you and I do. By accessing God in the promise. And I kept thinking about that and I said, wait a second. Yes, the preacher is taking promises from centuries and millennia before. And he's grabbing hold of them and he's pulling across into the New Testament. And I said, wow. This is this is wonderful to think about this promise, but guess what? This promise is renewed and updated because it's ours in Christ. How is it that a person rejects the life of greed and makes sure that their character is free from a love of money and is content with the things that they have and guards their hearts? Well, the preacher says the way you do that is by seeking the promise of God in Christ. Because when you hear the words, I will never forsake you, I will be with you, you remember, that's the promise of Jesus Christ to his church. We all learned that great commission text in Matthew 28. Jesus sends his church out to the nation. He says they all must be disciples. And then at the end of it all, he leaves the church with a great promise. I will be with you even at the end of the age. This is exactly what the preacher is speaking about here. He's seizing on the promise of Christ to not desert his church and to not forsake. And he says, this is the basis. How do we become rich in God? How do we reject a life of self-service? Of idolizing creatures and creations and comforts? How do we reject a life of materialism and greed? It's by seeking God in Jesus Christ. It's by trusting that having the presence of God with us is more satisfying and soul fulfilling than all of this stuff which is right here to hand, which is constantly promising and underperforming. You see, the way we have this character is by putting into practice this promise. I, I, I wonder if you see it here in the middle of verse 5. He's given the command. And he says, for he himself has said. Then he quotes the promises. You see here, the way the preacher has structured this is he's saying that the promise is to be applied for our moral strength. The way we do what is commanded is by grace. So laying our hands upon the promise of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting that it's an unfailing promise, and a promise full of grace, the promise that's full of strength. God's presence abides with you. And therefore, whatever your state or whatever your condition, you will have more than you need, as the apostle said. This is whether I have food or shelter or clothing. Paul said, if I have Christ, I learn to be content. That is the applying of promise 
to our moral calling is to find that God in Jesus Christ is more than adequate and that he will sustain us and nurture us and build us up in Christ so that we'll feel rich. We don't need the riches of this age because we are rich in Jesus Christ. When we're rich in Jesus Christ, we are rich in God. <coughs> People of God, we need to speak the promise into our ears. The promise is proclaimed so that we will have the fortitude and the strength. And so that great promise is ours this morning. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. We seek riches in God as we lay hold of Christ. A man obsessed with creaturely and material things interrupted Jesus and asked for an inheritance. By so doing, he betrayed the inner workings of his heart, of his soul, and his mind, and Jesus took that as an opportunity to warn him and to warn all of his disciples that we should have greater priorities being concerned over this world's possessions. Our greater priority is to see how we're treating God. Our greater concern is what are we pursuing? What is our ultimate heart motive and desire? What is it that we long for? What are we aiming at? Jesus said, don't allow worldly substitutes to replace the great priority which God has given, which is being rich in God toward Christ. If we do that, Jesus says, if you seek first the kingdom of God, we don't have to worry about any of these things. Because everything that we need will be given unto us. Father, we thank you for great promises. Promises which steady our soul. Promises which function like an anchor which is firm and fixed. Promises which breathe life into us and reassure us and lift up our countenance and, and speak to us truth about what we have in you. It's so far superior than the things that we so often in our sinfulness get distracted with here below. And so help us in view of the great promise of the Lord Jesus to be with us and to not forsake us. Lord, help us to be strong, to reject a life of consumption and self-worship and self-service, and instead be those who would seek the kingdom of God. Lord, assure us this morning that as we do that, that we will be rich in God, and as we do that, we will know the abiding peace, power, strength, and grace of this promise and with that to know that we will do well and all will be with will be well with us as jesus is with us himself assure us and comfort our hearts with these words we ask in jesus name amen